1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking to Brooke Hauser about her book, Enter Helen, The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I'm a writer, a journalist based in Northampton, Massachusetts. I moved here after living in New York City for, I don't know, about 10 years, and I got my start in women's magazines, um, as a writer and editor, and most recently, I uh, wrote the book Enter Helen, the Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman.
1: So how did you come upon the story of Helen Gurley Brown, and what drew you to her specifically as someone to write a biography about?
0: I had been looking for a book subject. Uh, My first book, which I actually wrote in Brooklyn, was about a high school for immigrant teens. Uh, It was called The New Kids, and it was a very intense reporting process where I was really living in the lives of these students. They came from more than 45 different countries around the world and spoke dozens of different languages. And um, it was a wonderful experience, but I kind of had to put my own life on hold while I reported it. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Northampton, uh, soon after coming here, I I um, had my, my son. I gave birth to my son. And, um, I, you know, when he was a few months old, I began looking to engage with a new story. Um, and I slowly started getting into the story of Helen Gurley Brown. The way I came upon it is that she died in August of 2012, and I read her obituary in the New York Times. It was written by Marguerite Fox, who's a great writer, and her obituary of, you know, for Helen really captured my imagination. I thought, this woman sounds fascinating. Why don't I know more about her, especially considering my background in magazines and in particular women's magazines. You know, I had been writing for Allure magazine for a long time where I was a contributing editor. And um, Helen Gurley Brown has such a great backstory. It's so colorful and interesting. And I just was curious about why I didn't know more about her and how revolutionary she had been with her first book, Sex and the Single Girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the end of the article, I noticed, I think it said, that her papers were collected at Smith College, and that's where I was living. So um, little by little, you know, I got a babysitter for my son who was still a baby at the time, and I began to go to Smith and kind of play around in the archives a little bit. Um, As I began to do more and more research, um, I realized that I didn't just want to tell the same story that Helen Gurley Brown had told for her entire life. I wanted to, in a sense, fact check her story. So, you know, on the one hand, I was reading all these old issues of Cosmo and I was... You know going through her letters but i also started looking at the masthead of you know cosmopolitan from 1965 her first year there and i tried to track down as many people as i could from that original masthead mm-hmm. for interviews mm-hmm.
1: i love that you mentioned the, the obituary because i was talking i was interviewing kate bullock a couple of weeks ago and she talked about reading mm-hmm. the obituary of carolyn heilbrand and obituaries are kind of my hobby horse because i think it's so essential that there be obituaries of more women so that we can be exposed to their stories and, um, especially for biographers, get ideas of who to write about because that's sort of. That's
0: true. And so I, I feel very morbid even <laughs> saying this, but truthfully, I've started reading the obits again <laughs> because, because I do feel that, you know, um, you're right. I mean, how do you decide which stories to tell? Mm-hmm. Um, who decides. What is an important story, and why aren't there more women reflected in those pages? And you know, I, I'm, I'm always keeping a lookout, and that's one place to look. In a sense, an obituary writer or section is a curator, deciding it's it's its own kind of archive, deciding, yeah. you know, which women's lives um, are important enough to tell and to share with the whole world, you know, because the whole world reads the New York Times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, a, a very well-read paper. So um, I have been looking there, and because I really like this writer, Margalit Fox, you <laughs> know, I've been reading hers in particular, <laughs> but, you know, there's lots of ways to find a subject, and I'm just trying to keep an open mind and, and open eyes mm-hmm. looking for that, you know?
1: Yeah. So, how long did you spend um, from researching to writing to publication? How long was that process for you for this book?
0: About four years, mm-hmm. because I started in 2012 and it's now 2016, and yeah. you know maybe a little less than four years. Mm-hmm. But um, I started off slowly, just going into the archives and reading those cosmos. And like I said, you know, I once I I got a hold of a masthead, I began calling, looking up, you know, some of those names on the masthead. And because they were from 1965, a lot of the people, you know, the original writers and editors, you know, some of them were not alive. Some of them had changed their names with marriage and, you know, it was very difficult to track people down. But early on, I got a key. I found a woman who had been an editor at Cosmo early on and her name was, pretty much the same. And I looked her up and I found her number. I called her and, you know, it was a bit of a cold call saying, Mm -hmm. hey, did you work at Cosmo in the 60s for (laughs) Helen Gurley Brown? And sure enough, she did. And we did an interview and then she began to introduce me to some of the friends and colleagues, you know, former colleagues who she had kept in touch with all of these years. And really, that's how the entire process went over the course Mm -hmm. of these few years that I was working on Helen's biography. You know, I found one name and that person led me to another. It was just this chain of names and, you know, personal introductions that I relied on.
1: Yeah. I think it's so interesting that the difference between working in an archive versus doing interviews, um, how did you find that that shaped the story in different ways?
0: Well, like I said, Helen, you know, was famous for telling her story over and over and over again. Um, if you were to read her memoirs, like Having It All and I'm Wild Again and even Sex and a Single Girl, plus, her columns in Cosmo, uh, her editor's letter was called Step Into My Parlor. You find variations on the same story, which is that she was a poor little girl. She called herself a mouse burger, which is, you know, her term for a plain Jane. Um, she was a poor little girl from Arkansas who made it big in L.A. and then New York. Um, you know, it kind of took on the air of this Hollywood log line, like from Hillbilly to Hollywood was mm-hmm. her story. And um, there's some truth to it, but I began. You know, I think if you were to rely on the archives solely, which I I didn't, um, you would find that story once again. Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing interviews, I really discovered a new story, which is that she invented herself, and that's why my book, the title, the subtitle is "The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown," because she really wasn't a poor little girl from Arkansas. In fact, she was. Um, you know, her childhood was firmly middle class. She always cast her parents and her family as these backwoods hillbillies. But in fact, her father had been a lawyer who was running, you know, getting ready to run for political office in Little Rock when he was killed in a tragic elevator accident. Her mother had been a schoolteacher. After the death of Helen's father, you know, when she was around the age of 10, her mother moved um, Helen and her sister to Los Angeles, where her sister got polio and, you know, needed medical treatment, and then they really did lose a lot of money and, you know, struggled. And at that point, Helen, I think it's fair to say that she was poor. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, her whole childhood was pretty comfortable before that. So I think, you know, these nuances are important. And for instance, even when the family lost their money, Helen's sister, um, you know, never really considered herself poor. That's not how she characterized herself. It was really Helen who saw herself that way, particularly when she was surrounded by, you know, the wealth and movie star culture of Hollywood, her new home. The reason I know all of this is because I, you know, again, early on, tracked down um one of Helen's cousins, a much younger woman, um, and she still lives in Arkansas. We spoke on the phone. Eventually I flew out to Arkansas to meet her in person. And her cousin Lou told me, you know, our family was always very, you know, upset and resented the way that Helen portrayed us in her books and in, and in Cosmo. You know, we're not hillbillies. Helen's mother was not a hillbilly. She was an educated woman, a strong woman who, you know, experienced a lot of depression after her husband died. And, did her best to make ends meet and I think it just you know goes to show that there's kind of a more universal truth here which is that everyone tells their own story Mm -hmm. and in telling it kind of crafts it and recasts it and Helen's you know Helen may not have been poor but that's how she saw herself Um, and self-perception has a lot to do with how we decide to tell our stories so that's why you know it was important for me to go out and find all these people who knew her personally and to try and encircle her with their interviews and, and tell a new story and find a new person under this, you know, facade that she had created. She she really uh, created the myth of herself, the legend of herself. And because of that, I think a lot of people felt like they never really knew her. She was one Helen in New York City and a completely different person um, to the relatives who knew her in Arkansas. Um, Who knows who the real Helen Gurley Brown was? It's really hard to say. And as a biographer and as a writer, I really loved exploring that, you know, her search for identity and, and the fact that she was, she was and is so difficult to pin down.
1: Yeah. One of the things I'm always interested in is, is, is how where we pick up the story, how that tilts it and changes it and and you pick it up in, in 1958 and focus on primarily what I would kind of characterize as the tra- trajectory of her work life, and then go back and pick up the earlier life, um, rather than just doing a traditional cradle to grave biography, right? What made you right. what led what led to that decision in structuring the book in that way? Cr- and in terms of time?
0: Well, when I started thinking about the book and writing my book, Proposal, um, you know, Mad Men was, I can't remember (laughs) if it was still on the air or about to go off the air, but you know, people were still talking about it. And I began to see the story of Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmo as kind of a women's version of Mad Men almost, Mm -hmm. you know, Mad Men um, set in the world of a woman's magazine, Cosmo. And You know, I also thought of Helen, people have compared her to Peggy and Joan, but I see her as a female Don Draper, (laughs) this very impenetrable um, kind of character who has created the artifice of herself. The same way with Don Draper, you meet him in the office, you know, on Mad Avenue, and he's this successful, shiny ad man. But as you begin to get into the series, there are these flashbacks. To his childhood, and you learn that he came from humble, destitute, kind of um, embarrassing beginnings. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and I saw real parallels there with Helen. You know, I, I thought it would. A lot of people don't even know who she is anymore, especially mm-hmm. young, younger people. Let's say under the age of thirty-five. So I thought, you know, he used the term from cradle to grave biography. Mm-hmm. Well. I wanted people to care about her first and, and to know to know who she was. So I felt it would be a good idea to start the the story with her, you know, and the success of Sex and a Single Girl to understand why she was so revolutionary and then to almost flash back to her childhood because her childhood was extremely important in forming her just as all of our childhoods are mm-hmm. informing us. Um, I just thought it would be a, a more entertaining way to get into her story. Um I don't think you have to do a from A to Z chronology every time with a mm-hmm. biography. You can kind of, you know, I, I I always saw this as a very cinematic story and in fact, you know, it was option to be a movie, which mm-hmm. is great. We'll see. You know, yeah. I, I would love for that to happen. Um so in in a way I was trying to think like what is if this I I was thinking that way, you know, mm-hmm. if this were a movie, where would it start? And it wouldn't start with you know, Helen being born right. <laughs> in a small town, <laughs> it would start with her right in the midst of, of her career, really even, you know, at right before the big success mm-hmm. with Sex and a Single Girl. That's yeah. where the movie would start in my mind. And mm-hmm. so that's where I decided to start the book. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so you mentioned there are people who might not be familiar with her. So this is ridiculously simple and also huge. Um, how would you describe her to those people?
0: Well, when I was working in magazines in New York City, and I still write for magazines, but I no longer live in New York City. Um, You know, of course I had heard of Helen Gurley Brown, but I, like a lot of people around me, thought of her as this older, you know, at that point, like old woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Didn't really know that much about her. There were photographs of her, um, you know, aging and wearing fishnets and high heels and miniskirts. And she was almost this kind of, grotesque figure who I think was um, unfairly mocked yeah. by the press and then the press. And, um, you know, so I, th- I think that's one image that we have of Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, the image that I wanted to capture was the earlier one where she was really in her prime. And the Helen Gurley Brown that I start the book with is this, you know, successful, ad, copywriter, and account executive who's about to transition into best-selling author with her surprise hit, you know, Sex and the Single Girl, which was extremely scandalous when it first came mm-hmm. out in 1962. And then three years later, she became the editor of Cosmopolitan Magazine, having previously had no experience at all working at a magazine. <laughs> um so that's the Helen Gurley Brown who I wanted to introduce readers to was this, you know, very bold, and at the same time, you know, she she was, so her nickname was the Iron Butterfly at Cosmo, and I think that says a lot, because on the outside, she was this kind of soft, fluttery, you know, prim creature, but on the inside, she was made of iron, and she was extremely tough, and certainly you'd have to be tough in order to... Um, You know, work your way through 17 secretarial jobs to become the highest paid woman, copywriter, you know, ad woman on the West Coast, and then the editor of a major magazine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'd have to be tough. She also had the support of her husband, David Brown, who already had a career in Hollywood. You know, he would go on to become a major producer making films like Jaws. When they met, he was successful, but um, she was probably more successful. And I, I see him as the producer and Helen as his most successful production of all time. Yeah.
1: Um I wonder if you could talk a bit about her writing style because I think on on some level through Sex and the Single Girl and her other books and also through the tone used in Cosmopolitan she really changed the for lack of a better phrase the type of writing that you could get away with and also the way people were writing for an audience of women. Um could you talk mm-hmm. a bit about that?
0: I think she's hilarious. I mean her you know that's one reason why I wanted to write this book is because soon after reading that obituary I mentioned I bought a copy of Sex and the Single Girl. I actually had just had my son, as I mentioned, he was only a few months old, and I used to walk him uh, in a stroller up and down a bike path in my neighborhood. And so I got this hot pink paperback copy of Sex and the Single Girl, and I put it against the hood of my stroller. And because I was on a bike path and there wasn't any traffic, <laughs> I just walked back and forth and basically read Sex in the Single Girl that way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was not the target reader, just had a baby, mm-hmm. moved out of the big city, you know, to a small town and, you know, was older probably than some of the women she was trying to reach. But, um I just loved it. I thought it was smart. I thought it was ridiculous at times, very funny. Mm-hmm. Her voice utterly captivated me. I mean, she, she, I don't know if people understand how smart this woman was. Mm-hmm. She was, In my, I think she was kind of brilliant. And her writing is just so conversational and funny and witty and charming. And, you know, she throws out all of these ideas for how to meet men. And there's so ridiculous, you know. For example, go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, or consider joining uh, a political club—Democratic, um, Republican, or both. It doesn't matter. You know, she <laughs> just she just had these great ridiculous ideas. It's hard to tell when she's joking mm-hmm. and when she's being serious. And but she always has this kind of wink, you know, to the reader. Um, she also said things that were completely shocking at the time. It was the early 60s. You know, people think of the 60s as Woodstock and hippies and Vietnam and, you know, the assassinations of King and Kennedy. And, that. you know, that was the later 60s. In the early 60s, free love didn't exist. You know, people were still expected women to get married, you know, in their early 20s. And if they weren't already married by that time, then they were considered to be old maids or spinsters or, you know, extra women. Mm -hmm. So here comes Helen Gurley Brown in 1962 saying, you know what? The single girl isn't a spinster. She's the newest glamour girl of our time. And, you know, don't be ashamed. You're not an outcast. Embrace this status. Go ahead. Go out into the world. Date men. Sleep with them if you please. Have affairs with married (laughs) men. And here's how you do it and get away with it. And, you know, she also raised the question of, well, what is a sexy woman? And her answer was, "A sexy woman is a woman who enjoys sex," and that was, you know, kind of earth shattering. Mm -hmm. Of course, single women were having sex before marriage, but they weren't um, talking about it out in the open, and certainly they weren't writing about it the way Helen Gurley Brown did. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned she made it sound fun. Mm -hmm. She made it. She made it. She made it sound fun. She, you know, being single had been kind of a curse before, and she made it sound like a wonderful good time you know which which of course it can be yeah
1: um in the acknowledgement section you mentioned that it resonated with you because it's a guide to becoming an individual which i thought was such an ex- right. an elegant way to put it and i think really gets to the heart of what the book wanted to do but which was also one of the core hopes of the women's movement um so what right. was her attitude toward the women's liberation movement and vice versa I think at first she didn't really understand the moment, the
0: movement, and it did, it took her a while to understand the movement. Um, what you said about, you know, Sex and the Single Girl being a guide to becoming an individual. You know, I read the book in 2012 on its 50th anniversary, just coincidentally, and the sex stuff, you know, is not shocking anymore. Mm-hmm. We live in an age of, you know, Lena Dunham's show girls, you know, sex in the city is, is old news. You know, we've seen it all, I think on television and it's just, you know, the ideas that Helen Gurley Brown brought up about single women having sex are just not shocking anymore. But for me, what really resonated was this idea of women, you know, single women going out into the world and, claiming their independence, and she really encouraged women then to move out of their parents' house, go get a job, turn it into a career, um, meet men, sleep with them if they felt like it, and don't think about marriage just yet, you know, have some fun before you settle down, and a lot of those ideas, I think, are just as relevant now as they were back then, Mm -hmm. so all of that did really resonate with me, and in particular, her financial advice to women um, and her career advice to women was, is, is good advice, very practical, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think sound for the most part. Um, so as far as the women's movement is concerned, she was certainly an outcast of the movement. Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan were early critics of hers. Mm-hmm. Understandably and justifiably. <laughs> um, Betty Friedan called Cosmo under Helen Gurley Brown obscene and horrible, and she thought it was an insult to women. Uh, you know, I don't agree with that necessarily, mm-hmm. but um, other points are well taken. And I think that, in a sense, you know, well, Helen preceded a lot of the feminists, um, she was much older than Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, I'm sorry, Helen was much older than Gloria Steinem. Mm -hmm. And so she came up in the world and in her career before feminism really existed. The women's movement didn't really take hold until the late 60s, early 70s. So, you know, Helen never really called herself a feminist until much later in her life. But she was doing things that were good for women and bad for women <laughs> you know early early on i mm-hmm. think that she was always looking out for number 1 and for herself as an individual whereas feminism is really about you know supporting women as a whole and as mm-hmm. a gender and working for the the rights and and equality of the larger group which helen did later on you know she was an okay. early supporter of a woman's right to choose she published articles in cosmo that were you know, educating readers about equal pay and equal rights. And a lot of that was also because of her relationship with Gloria Steinem. The two, you know, when Gloria became, um, helped found Ms. Magazine, Helen and Gloria developed this um, almost like a pen pal relationship over the years where they would write each other back and forth. Helen would recommend to Gloria, Oh, you really need to do something about the covers of Ms. They need to be sexier. You know, (laughs) they were putting Bella Abzug as their cover girl, you know? Um, And then Gloria would, would um, talk to Helen about the movement, mm-hmm. and um, she even visited Cosmo once and and talked to the staffers all about, well, what is the women's movement? What does it stand for? My favorite story is that um, once, you know, there used to be demonstrations and protests at Cosmo over the years during this time. And once in the 70s, there was a protest happening at Cosmo, and Helen Gurley Brown was up in her office. The protest was happening downstairs in the lobby and she called Gloria and she said, Gloria, Gloria, you have to help us. Your people are here their protests, and they're protesting. Your people are protesting Cosmo. And Gloria said, my people, what do you mean? Who are my people? And Helen said, you know, women. <laughs> and I just love this idea of, you know, Helen um, was regarding women as almost this, like, other species and, <laughs> You know, so Gloria said, this is during my interview with her, and Gloria said, you know, the point was just that she understood the movement and she didn't understand Mm -hmm. the movement. I think Pat Carbine actually said that she was the publisher of Mm Ms. You know, but it was this constant back and forth where Gloria was always trying to kind of enlighten Helen about the women's movement. And Helen would seem to understand it until she said something that revealed she really didn't, Mm -hmm. you know.
1: (laughs) She's kind of this liminal figure, sort of stuck in between, which might might have to do with her generation. But um, you also write about in the corporate culture dominated by men that mm-hmm. her power had limitations. I think the the anecdote was that they were having a corporate party and the the um, publisher declared it a stag night, and so she couldn't come, uh, which right. was kind of shocking at that point because she was extremely right. powerful, and right. um, that was just really appalling. So she was sort yeah. Of, there's
0: the, there's yeah. The, the the difference between Helen and some of the other feminists at that era is that, you know, she was trying to make it in a man's world mm. and had made it by using her feminine wiles, you know, flirting and charming and, and wiggling around and doing whatever she needed to make it to the top. Um, by the time the women's movement came around and really um, was, you know, making a national Statement, mm-hmm. I think women didn't want to make it in a man's world. They wanted to make it in their own world. They, they didn't want to bend and contort themselves in order to fit into a man's world. Mm-hmm. They wanted the world to to accommodate them. And that's the difference between Helen and some of those other feminists is that she was willing to still flirt and do whatever she needed to do. And so that stag affair that you were mentioning, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what she made of that. I don't think she ever spoke about it publicly. Um, but, I, you know, that is shocking to read today mm-hmm. that a company would, you know, honor its highest um, level employees but only the men and and that she would be not invited to an affair like that,
1: you know? Yeah. Goodness. Um, You mentioned her insecurities throughout the book and at one point you liken it to being practically its own organ. Can you talk a bit about how she became so successful in spite of this or even through this, sort of by leveraging her insecurity?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that You know, Helen coined the term mouse burger to describe a plain Jane, you know, this idea of a simple girl from a small town. And she always described herself that way. And while she was from a small town, uh, she was born in the town of Green Forest, Arkansas, where I went, and it's now largely known as a, like a poultry processing plant town, um... You know, she moved to Little Rock uh, when she was quite young, and then from Little Rock, she moved to Los Angeles, which is a big city. So, mm-hmm. I think it it's a little bit of a stretch that she was this plain Jane from a small town. Um, you know, but it's really hard to say because maybe that's just how she saw herself. It, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't I I don't think that there was much plain about her. Um, perhaps she felt unpretty, you know, and and, and she, not perhaps, she definitely did. I think that almost more than anything, she craved, desperately wanted to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, partly this is because she grew up watching a lot of um, old Hollywood movies, and she loved the glamour and fame and movie stars of that era. Um, But also, she moved to Hollywood, where she was surrounded by beautiful women and starlets in this culture where it was very important how you looked. Um, So it's understandable where her insecurity came from. I also think that her mother, um, you know, used to say things to Helen like, well, it's a good thing you're smart, dot, 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 (laughs) implying because you're not that pretty, you know, and if you want to get ahead in the world, you're going to need to use your brains because you don't have beauty. So, you know, things like that were very damaging to her. She was also very self-conscious about her acne. Um, but, you know, to me, a lot of these problems just seem like normal teenage girl problems. Mm-hmm. Like, what girl isn't worried that she isn't pretty enough or isn't embarrassed if she has pimples on her face? I mean, so it's it's hard to say where that insecurity came from. You know, mm-hmm. she she always missed her father after he died you know i think she looked for um for confirmation in is that the right word she looked for um acceptance by men she wanted to be attractive to men she wanted to be loved by men in a way you know as much as she admired gloria steinem for just being an intelligent woman Um, I think what Helen admired most Mm -hmm. of all about her was that she was beautiful and attractive to men. Mm -hmm. And that's what Helen always wanted to be, but had to work really hard at, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, but her insecurity, you know, she, she talks about it in all of her books. She talks about how her insecurity fueled her need to succeed and fueled her drive. And it's because of her insecurity that she went on to conquer the world, you know, Mm -hmm. she didn't rely on her beauty because she felt she didn't have that. Um, She had to use her brains to get ahead. And, um, you know, she used her, quote, early in life problems to motivate her. I think at one point in one of her books, she compared it to, you know, early in life problems can be the yeast that makes you rise into bread, <laughs> something like that. And um, so that's, you know, I think she at times exaggerated her own history in order to make that point. But the the larger message here is that, you know, if I can do it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift that she gave her readers. She said, okay, so you're not that great in the looks department. You know, you're maybe you you're a B student instead of straight A's, Um, you don't feel very special. Well, I felt the same way and I still managed to become the highest paid woman in advertising on the West Coast and bag a marvelous husband. (laughs) You know, here's how you can do it too. I now live in, you know, this glorious mansion and drive a Mercedes Benz and, you know, have a stellar career. And you can too, if you follow these simple rules mm-hmm. that, I mean, you know, she's remembered as so many different things, but one of the major genres that she helped pioneer was the self-help genre. Mm-hmm. So it's important, you know, when she wrote her book, Having It All, there were discussions around the title. I think she originally wanted to call it, you know, something like the Mouse Burgers Plan. I forget what she wanted to call it, but she didn't want to call it Having It All because Mm -hmm. she felt that it would alienate her readers who she imagined to be these kind of simple working class girls. And in order, she knew that it was the most important thing was for them to relate to her. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that in order for them to relate to her, she had to um, not seem like she was so into herself.
1: You know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. One of the other things I think we should be we should point out is how long she did this. Was that she was work, She was editing Cosmopolitan until 1996, right? Nineteen yes, okay, yeah. ninety-seven, yeah,
0: 1996
1: or and then was still working there for quite a long time on the and overseeing the international editions. Um, so she had a really long career,
0: right? Mm-hmm. She had a long career, and in my opinion, there was really nothing average about Helen Gurley mm-hmm. Brown. I mean, she was, like I said, I I think she was brilliant. She was very funny. She was a great writer, even if you don't agree with everything that she was writing. Um, You know, and and she loved work. Mm -hmm. Everyone I spoke to said that she was an absolute workaholic. And so she started at Cosmo in 1965, stayed there until around 1997, then went on to oversee some of the international editions. You know, she really worked until the very last moment, and um, I think she loved working, but I also think that she depended on it, that it really defined her, and that once it was taken from her, um, she didn't really know what to do with herself. Yeah. I see her story as being a little sad at times. You know, she achieved fame. She had this great husband in marriage, apparently, but um, in my mind, she was always kind of an outcast and a bit of a lonely figure. Mm-hmm. Um, she remained an outcast of the women's movement. She was also an outcast of the youth movement in the 1960s. Um, I have a, a brief part in the book, which I really loved writing about I Magazine, which was mm-hmm. another Hearst publication. And it was kind of like a, there was an article in Jezebel recently where the writer compared it to Rookie magazine today. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of a Rolling Stone meets Cosmo, addressed to college students who you know were interested in counterculture. So, of all people, Hearst had Helen. Supervised this magazine, which is just the craziest match in the world, you know. And there was a younger editor who was actually the editor in chief, and she and Helen, you know, often butted heads over things, um, you know. But I just, I just saw that as yet another group that didn't accept Helen. Mm-hmm. You know, she was so much older. Yeah. Than a lot of people, you know, yeah. older than the feminists and the women's movement, older than the kids who were running I Magazine and. You know, um, I just think that she was a little out of step with some of these new ideas that they were talking about, not to mention the music. You know, she yeah. was listening to, to show tunes and Broadway musicals, not to, um, The Grateful Dead and Cream. You know, like she, <laughs> she, 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 she didn't like the hippies with their long hair. She, you know, there was an article that ran in, i magazine called Cosmetics of the Soul which was all about how beauty is internal you know mm-hmm. and no screw that like helen absolutely <laughs> thought beauty was the Cosmo girl the Cosmo girl epitomized beauty and she was covered in makeup had big hair lots of hairspray big boobs cleavage up to her neck and was wearing some you know sexy outfits mm-hmm. so in a lot of ways Cosmo was the antithesis of i and by the way, you know, Cosmo was also, um, in, in a lot of ways the opposite of Ms. When the founders and editors of Ms., um, went, went around and tried to get, um, advertisers interested in advertising in Ms. Magazine, um, well, I spoke with an early publisher, Pat Carbine, and she said, you know, we went out and we said, Ms. Magazine didn't exist yet, so they kind of had to pitch it to people and explain to them what it would be when it did exist. And they said, well, picture a spectrum, and on one end is Cosmo, and on the other end is Ms. Magazine. And if you think of Cosmo as the poison, then think of Ms. Magazine as the
1: antidote. (laughs) I love that, you know. Amazing. Um, So what do you see as Helen Gurley Brown's legacy? Well, I
0: think you know her legacy is vast, and it includes the good and the bad, so mm-hmm. part of her legacy is she really brought the phrase having it all into the public mm-hmm. consciousness for better or worse. I think it's a phrase that really irritates a lot of women for me personally it's it's just like a t shirt catchphrase like mm-hmm. it doesn't mean anything to me um but it really drives people nuts and <laughs> you know that's that's the conversation that she started and mm-hmm. You know, I think for some people, having it all means working and being a mom, for instance. But Helen, you know, people say she was never a mother, but in fact, she was a stepmother to mm-hmm. David Brown's son who died. So, you know, that's, that's not completely true, um, you know, but that's one conversation that she started that's still waging today. And I think she also changed magazines um, before she came around. Women's magazines were aimed that young housewives who wanted to be able to, you know, mix up the perfect cocktail and plant the hair bow on her head before her husband walked through the door. And, you know, there were all these, like, housekeeping tips and Tupperware parties. Not just Tupperware parties, but um, they used to have, like, Stanley Steamer cleaning product parties, which oh, no. sounds, you know, <laughs> horrible. So then Helen came in and she said, you know hey, housewife, why don't you consider, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a housewife, of course, but Helen was saying, um, why don't you consider going back to work or getting a job if you've never had one before and, you know, and making the same salary as your husband, perhaps. And, you know, when he comes home, you can still serve him, but instead of that pot roast, why don't you, um, you know, change into a sexy, sexy, sandex cat suit and roll around on the floor together. You know, she was saying, um, I think that in a way it's like not that different from some of the articles that were running in Ladies Home Journal and Good Housekeeping. Like she still liked the idea of the wife greeting the husband when he walked through the door. Mm -hmm. It's just that she'd be wearing this ludicrous, um, you know, bloomers underwear or sexy lingerie (laughs) or whatever it was, you know, but, even that, you know, to feminists now, that might seem a little offensive, but at the time it was very shocking to. I'm specifically talking about a story called Husband Coming Home Clothes that ran <laughs> in 1965, and mm-hmm. it showed all these models, or two models, um, you know, kind of welcoming their husbands home from work. But as far as I remember, you know, the women were supposed to have been at the office all day too. And then they met their husbands at home and they look like, you know, they're they're dressed in these sexy outfits and they're clinging to their husband's legs and it looks like they're two seconds away from having sex. And that was very shocking at yeah. the time. So to just, you know, Helen really loved the idea of um, showing men and women lusting after each other. Mm-hmm. You know, she basically showed... Over all those decades, she worked at Cosmo. Um, she showed that women could be horny, too. Mm-hmm. and that was a big part of her message that that was okay. And um, you know, I think that that was that was what she wanted to spread most of all was just this idea that it was okay to enjoy sex, that it was great to enjoy sex. and she wanted her pictures to really show that, to really show men and women interacting with each other and so that's a legacy that lasts and also just you know for better or worse this idea that sex sells well she helped pioneer that along with Hugh Hefner and um, clearly it's true Mm -hmm. because if you walk by the newsstands today you can see her legacy on most magazine covers (laughs) (laughs) you know beyond that I I think it's important to say that she was one of the very early supporters of a woman's right to choose. Mm -hmm. And that relates to the sex, you know, subject of sex as well, because she just wanted women to be able to enjoy sex without consequence. And if you don't want to get pregnant, then, you know, getting pregnant is a huge (laughs) consequence of having sex with a partner before marriage. So, Mm -hmm. you know, these are some of the discussions that she was talking about. Um, in the early 60s that people are still talking about today. And she also ran, like I said, a lot of articles about, well, you know, I found one article she ran early on about where to get an abortion. If you lived in a small town, she gave a guide to women to, you know, if they needed this service and didn't know how to go about finding it, it was designed to help them. She wrote articles about equal, or she didn't write, she published articles about equal pay, about equal rights, about rape, about a lot of issues Mm -hmm. that affect women. And um, she's not really remembered for that. It takes going back into the archives and, you know, dusting off some old copies of Cosmo from the early 60s and and going through them and reading them to remember her influence in that way. She even published an excerpt from Kate Millett's Sexual Politics. I mean, come on. That's shocking, you know. It's so (laughs) unlikely. But I think Helen, even though she wasn't always uh, embraced by feminists, you know, she tried. She tried. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways, maybe she was more influential than they were because she reached you know, millions of women who might not otherwise have ever heard of someone like Kate Millett or Gloria Steinem or Betty Friedan. Right. She was really speaking to these "quote unquote" you know small town girls.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Dare I ask what you're working on next?
0: <laughs> I am looking for my next book subject. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed writing a biography, which. I actually never even thought about (laughs) as a biography. I just thought of it as Mad Men that at a women's magazine, you know, starring Helen Gurley Brown. Um, In the end, I ended up getting really interested in her character and just Mm. the complexity of who she was. So now, you know, several years later, I do look at it as a biography. But um, I really enjoyed it. And, And, you know, early on in my edits with my my editor, she said, you know, you have this compelling portrait of Helen Gurley Brown, but it would be a lot more compelling if you showed how she really tapped into the zeitgeist. So mm-hmm. let's make it more about, you know, the 60s and specifically Helen Gurley Brown's 60s and how they influenced her and how she influenced them. So I would love to find a similar kind of story where it's about, you know, about a woman who somehow shapes the times around her just as they shape her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I enjoyed the social history element of that. Um, I also enjoyed how much fun it was. You know, it's it, for me, it was a real education. I knew about the women's movement, but this was a chance to, to get so much deeper inside mm-hmm. of that subject and to read myself even further into feminism, just like all these women before me did. Yeah. You know, if you read old interviews with Gloria Steinem and Letty Cotton-Pogrebin, who was a founder of Ms., but also Helen's book publicist for Sex and the Single Girl. Um, And people ask them, well, how did you become a feminist? And a lot of people say, I read myself into feminism. (laughs) So, you know, to just, it's not just about reading the, the classic books, but also the articles and the Um, you know, mimeographed copies and manifestos that were being passed around in those early years a book that I really enjoyed was Susan Brown Miller's um, In Our Time Mm -hmm. which is a great portrait of the origins of the movement so, um, you know, I I don't know what I'm going to write next, but I'm definitely looking for something, so if you have
1: any ideas that you're not doing yourself, let me know (laughs) Okay You've been listening to an interview with Brooke Hauser about her new book, Inter Helen, The Invention of Helen Gurley Brown and the Rise of the Modern Single Woman. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.